Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Jack Oslin, CEO and co-founder of Diamond Age, a construction robotics platform that's raised $58 million in funding. Jack, thanks for chatting with me today. Oh, appreciate you having me out, Brad. Not a problem at all. So to get things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I'm originally from a small town outside of Chicago. I got lucky. Uh, I got to split my childhood between the Midwest and Southern California, like my father finally got sick of those winters, so uh, we got a reprieve and got the beach instead. After college, I landed in Silicon Valley. I was working in the packaging industry, and that's really where I fell in love with factory automation, watching millions of things get built with a uh, machine that was super cool. And, you know, in my tenure in Silicon Valley, you know, I was watching all of these amazing companies being born and uh, becoming enormous businesses and I wanted to be a part of that. So it'd be a long time to find the right thing, but I finally found something after about 25 years in the Valley that I was really passionate about. And actually what I found was a problem that really pissed me off, Brett. Truth be told, I don't think anybody does a startup willingly who knows everything that's involved. So you got to have enough intestinal fortitude and emotional commitment to stay with it. So I started a company called Plenty back in 2012 uh, in the vertical indoor agriculture space. So uh, that was really my entree into technology. And today, after going through the Plenty experience, which, by the way, Plenty is doing amazing now, scaling the business and probably the leaders in the clubhouse, if you will, in that space. But the housing affordability problem found me. And so here I am today, you know, in a robotics startup, fortunately with a bunch of ridiculously talented people. And we're driving, you know, towards the American dream of pollen ownership for the missing middle class. And I saw on LinkedIn that it was the the mid-90s, I think, that you first made your way to Silicon Valley. Could you paint a picture for us? What was that like? in the 90s in Silicon Valley? It was actually earlier than that, Brett. I got there in the mid-80s, and my most fond memory of Silicon Valley back in those days is that you could actually drive up and down the freeways as fast as you wanted to because there just weren't that many people there. But, you know, these were the days when Hewlett Packard was the company that everybody was talking about as, you know, the standard bearer and Qualcomm was just starting out. So those were super exciting times. You know, like I said, I watched a bunch of really amazing companies be born and then become incredibly immense businesses. And and that's what was super exciting about it. It was it was really kind of the wild, wild west of technology back in those days. Super fun. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, a few questions that we like to ask, and the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First one, what founder and CEO do you admire the most, and what do you admire about them? So this may be a little off the beaten path for your audience, but the guy that I found to be super interesting early on was Wayne Huizenga. 
Wayne Izinga is famous for starting three incredibly massive businesses without actually inventing anything. So what he did was he perfected the concept of consolidation. He wrote a playbook and he ran it over and over again. He started waste management and then took that public and cashed out for a billion dollars. Then he started Blockbuster, grew that, cashed out for a billion dollars, and then started AutoNation and then took that public. And the guy was just a remarkable businessman from understanding the dynamics of the industry and how to kind of wash, wrench, and repeat a successful model. He was sort of the North Star for me. When I built the Plenty playbook, it was to bring automation to a labor-constrained industry, agriculture, and then decentralize it to localize the supply chain. And that's what we're doing with Diamond Age. We're putting our system in the field, build houses in local communities. So if you got a good playbook, just keep running it over and over again. As soon as you said that name, I'm like, I've heard that very recently and I, I figured it out. It was, uh, we're having a conversation now with his son. I believe his name is Tegan. And I think the company's Energy X or something along those lines. And he'll be, uh, he'll be joining the pod. And I was doing my research and I, I came across his dad and I was reading through that list on his Wikipedia and it was like, holy shit, he started some big, big companies. Yeah, the guy's a monster. It's fantastic. What about books? Are there any specific books that have had a major impact on you as a founder? And sometimes here we talk about like business books, but I think the ones that are always really exciting are like the personal books that you know, influence how you think about the world. Do any books like that come to mind? Oh, yeah. Well, you could have said business books and I'd have given you the same answer. So I actually read this book every single year, right? It's by Viktor Frankl. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. Frankl was a therapist who survived the Nazi concentration camp. And he developed a treatment based on the concept that you're going to have everything in life taken away from you, but the one freedom that all people possess is the ability to choose their attitude in a given set of circumstances. And I'm not saying that startup life in any way compares to a concentration camp, but starting a company, any company, is fraught with extreme highs and lows and mostly grinding right on the journey which can be really discouraging and is certainly full of personal sacrifice. So, you know, your attitude can be the difference between success and failure. And for me, you know, it's certainly my attitude is the thing that gives meaning to my life. So this is the book that I share with everybody. I have so many founders that come on here to talk about that book. Whenever I take away the option of like the lean startup or the hard thing about hard things, I feel like everyone recommends this book. And People listening are probably annoyed by now because I say the same thing. That's a book I read like 10 years ago, but I need to go back to it. So I remember reading it at that time and I was like 22 years old. I remember just reading it thinking like, huh, maybe my life doesn't suck as bad as I think it does. It really in perspective and really helps you develop the mindset, I think. Yeah, yeah. It is all about a founder mindset. Now let's switch gears and let's dive into Diamond Age. So I was doing my research for this last night and I... Yeah, threw my computer in front of my fiance and said, look at this. This is really, really cool stuff. You know, we talk to a lot of companies that are cybersecurity or, or SaaS companies, but you're not a SaaS company. There's some serious technology here and you're doing some awesome stuff. So how do you describe what you do to someone? Yeah. So clearly, you know that what we do can be complex, but, you know, really boiling it down, Diamond Age uses robotics to build affordable, energy efficient, 
single family homes with less labor. We're bringing affordability to first time home buyers. And that was really what inspires everybody at Diamond Age is this is a not just domestic, but a worldwide social problem. So we happen to have a bunch of guys in the business who are grew up in factory automation and around robotics. And we're really taking a holistic approach to home building with automation. Because quite frankly, we want everybody who wants to own a home to be able to afford one. And can you help us visualize what that looks like? So let's just imagine I you know, buy some land and I, and I come to you and I say, okay, I want a home. What happens from there? Yeah. So the first thing that happens is I tell you, I can't do that for you, Brett, because we work for the production housing industry. So there are all kinds of different products in housing and people don't understand that. And so you really could be successful. You have to sort of pick one and then be best in class at it. And because we want to impact as many people as fast as we possibly can, we decided to align with production housing and sort of more simply that translates to track housing. So companies that build houses in volume, because that's really the problem today with affordability is there's not enough supply, too much demand, not enough supply. So that's what we're trying to do is get more houses into the market. So we work with companies like Century Communities and B.R. Horton and Lennar and Pulte and such, because these guys build hundreds of thousands of homes. And that's the fastest way to help the market is to go faster. And what type of savings are they seeing when they build with Diamond Age versus if they go the traditional route of building a home? Yeah. So, you know, we're still pretty early in our development. You know, I tell people that if if Diamond Age was a baseball game, you know, we'd be the top of the fifth inning. So we have about 25% of our robotic tools in the field. We've pretty much nailed our platform which is what carries all the robotic tools. And the immediate value that we bring these home builders is speed. So in 2022, when we started building homes for century communities, we proved right off the bat that we could build four times faster than they could using conventional construction techniques. That's a big deal because the cost of capital is super expensive. And if we can reduce the cycle time, give them more turns on their capital. I mean, that, those are real financial levers that people can pull to make money while still bringing affordability to the market. And that's our goal. We want to help home builders make more money while lowering the price of homes. And does that, is there a cost savings because of labor or is it also in materials? Like, are there different materials that you're using or is it just about all about labor? Yeah, so there will be some in materials, but I will call that the appreciable difference for us. It's really about driving labor out of the process. So today it takes about 3000 man hours to build a house. We believe we can get to 1200 and that includes the people running all the automate 1200 hours total. So that's one. And then certainly the cycle time reduction are really key to this thing. Because be able to do this reliably and predictably makes a big difference, especially if you're a customer is a publicly traded company. 
I was just looking online earlier today and I saw in San Francisco, there's a group called like the Safe Road Group and they're going around and, and they're putting cones on all of the self-driving cars because that disables the cars. So they're anti-technology. They do it as these self-driving cars are going to put them out of work, going to take away jobs. So I would assume you don't have people putting cones on your machines, but I have to imagine you're prepared for some type of pushback from people to say, hey, this is going to take away jobs. Yeah, so that is a super interesting point. And fundamentally, what we're doing here is changing jobs in the construction industry. Today, construction is physically demanding work. And if you look at what the world's economy has become since 1980, we've really become a service economy. People don't want to swing hammers and hold drywall over their head anymore. So by changing that work, by giving that physically demanding work to robots, we're accomplishing two things. We're taking that work off of people, but then we're turning that job actually into a job that is desirable for people. Secondarily, there's already a massive labor shortage in the home construction space, and there has been since 2011. So nobody in home building is going to lose their job. We really need a bunch more labor, and because people don't want to do the work as it exists today, you know, we're changing the job to make it more technology-focused, because that's, that's what younger people are interested in. So I guess there's two components to that, right? One, it sounds like would be upskilling the existing people that are in the job market or in construction. And then it's doing everything you can to try to encourage young people to pursue a career in construction as well. Is that right? Yeah. So it's actually, we're trying to make it even easier than that. So the way we think about this is for us to be successful, we need to make the interfaces for our systems so intuitive that I could take a young person out of an Amazon warehouse and bring them to a job site, hand them a tablet, and then just let them start to engage with it, just like they would engage with their phone. And that's really the objective here is, you know, take someone who's making, you know, let's call it 17 to $20 an hour and give them an opportunity to come into a career path that will pay them significantly higher than that without having a super rigorous training side to it, right? It's tap into their natural curiosity. And then really it makes finding the right people come down to good attitudes, good work ethic, you know, and cultural fit, you know, today, those people are controls engineers, right? We need that level of skill set to operate. But as we advance every single day, the software interface gets simpler and simpler. So, you know, we're really trying to create better jobs in the low skilled space that are just better for people and lead to more homes. And something you mentioned there is, you know, this was a problem that really pissed you off. So what was that like for you? And I'm, I'm sure there's probably other problems that you were frustrated by. What was it about this problem specifically that you said, nope, enough, I'm going to go and start another company to tackle this problem? Oh, yeah. Dude, let me tell you. So I had no interest in starting another company, right? It is hard. But 
my son came to me and told me that he and his family were thinking about moving because they couldn't afford to buy a home. And I might have understood that if, you know, he was a car mechanic and his wife was a school teacher. But he leads executive recruiting at Waymo, and she's a pediatric cardiology nurse practitioner at Stanford Children's Hospital. They make enough money. But it turns out that I was completely disconnected from the problem because I hadn't bought a house in 30 years. So when I looked at the problem, it became clear that like a lot of industry on manual labor, the only solution was automation. And that's when I developed the business thesis and went out and recruited my co-founder, Ruffle Barone, to see if he'd be interested in tackling the technical thesis. So that was back in 2017. And we spent six months driving around Northern California and the Delta area, talking to people in the industry. Quite frankly, looking for someone to talk us out because we knew it was going to be hard and we couldn't find them. As a matter of fact, the very last guy we talked to was an architect and he told me, he looked me straight in the face and he said, you have a moral obligation to do this. If you don't do this, we're definitely not going to have enough homes in this country. So Russell and I went back and decided we were going to give it a go. We rolled up some of our own money. And in February 2018, we took a small building down the street from Tesla where Russell was working and we went to work. And, uh, you know, here we are five years later building homes for the ninth largest home builder in the country. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And I don't really have a deep understanding of the problem with the housing crisis, but I I think I remember hearing in a podcast something about how it's also a regulatory issue and that there's been limits on the number of homes that can be built. Am I understanding that correct? Is there a regulatory element here that's making homes from being built? Yeah. So it's not a regulatory problem per se. It's a NIMBY problem, right? N-I-M-B-Y, that stands for not in my backyard. And what that happens is people who are established and have developed, you know, significant equity in their homes, they don't want other people coming in and impacting, you know, their area. It's a super selfish way to look at it. Now, there's ways to solve that, that people just are not willing to be open-minded to. San Francisco and the Bay Area in general is an acute version of that. You've got Palo Alto, which has tons and tons of land as you go west, but the area doesn't even want Stanford to build more student housing because they don't want more people in their area. So what happens is the production home building industry, got these big, you know, volume home builders, they're building in areas called exurbs. So you think about it like this, you've got a metropolitan area, right? Cities. Then we developed the suburbs, and that started when tract housing started to become popular back in the 50s. And once all the suburbs outside the major metros were pretty well impacted, 
they had to go out a little further. And now they call this the exurb. And the exurbs generally are defined by about an hour commute from a major metro area. The industry calls it drive till you qualify for a loan because the further away you get from a metro area, the cheaper the housing gets, right? Because you accept the commute. So regulatory isn't really the issue. We know how to build houses. We know how to build all kinds of different housing products here, but it's really the impacted areas. It's the existing demographics, if you will, getting in the way. Yeah, I think this was the last year it came out, and I don't want to bash him because I'm a big fan of Mark Andreessen, but I, I think he was being criticized a lot in the media. You know, he had his big thing come out during COVID of it's time to build and kind of build America again. And then they were trying to build housing in Atherton, where he lives, and he was writing, you know, all of these letters to make sure that houses didn't get built there. And I think there were a lot of people criticizing that move. So it sounds like it's very similar to what you just described, right? They don't want to yard. Yeah, that is nimbyism at its worst. Super, super interesting. Now, let's talk a little bit about traction. So you mentioned there you're working with the, I think it was the number nine biggest builder in America. Is that correct? Yep, Century Communities. What other type of traction and, and growth are you seeing? Are there any numbers that you can share with our audience? They always love to hear about numbers and metrics. Yeah, so let me talk about it in terms of the market size. So the way that the housing industry decides how many homes they should be building. They look at the census data around new household formation. That's a super easy number to get out on the census.gov website. But it basically points to that we need to be building on average about one and a half million brand new single family homes in the U.S. every single year just to keep up with new household formation, right? Multifamily, apartments, condos, all that stuff, that's even separate. So there you go. There's a number, a million and a half homes a year. The industry has only been building about half of that on average, you know, seven, 800,000 houses for like the last 15 years. It's only in the last couple of years that the industry has really sort of bared down and built over a million homes a year. So we've got two problems. The first one is we don't build enough homes annually. So that unmet demand is now piling up. So the aggregate unmet demand since 2001 is about 7 million homes. We're 7 million homes short in this country. And that's got a street value of about $2 trillion, maybe a little more than that. So the annual PAM, the annual demand for single-family houses, is just under a trillion dollars in the United States. And the portion of that that Diamond Age is aligned with is about $430 billion a year, right? So this is a massive market because it's a huge asset class, right? Housing is a huge asset class. So there's a lot of work to do. You know, we have built 15 homes today. We just started building homes last June. When Diamond Age scales here, probably the beginning of 2026, we will put about 12,000 homes worth of capacity into the market annually. So 
12,000 homes worth of capacity in 2026, 12,000 in 2027, 12,000 in 2028. Well, now we got 36,000 homes a year of capacity that we can build. And we're going to do that on an annual basis. And right, you need those kind of numbers going forward. Because if you're going to make up that unmet demand, the let's call it 500,000 homes a year that we're short, it's a big lift. Are there any critics of this approach? I think whenever there's you know, a really innovative idea, there's always you know the, the laggards in the industry who they don't want change. Are you facing any pressure in those terms of you know, people in the industry who just don't want to change? They don't want to adopt new technology, anything like that? Well, so two things on that. The first one is every single home builder is experiencing the labor shortage. So everybody's looking for a way to solve that problem, to future-proof their businesses. So to that extent, they're open to looking. What's advantageous for Diamond Age is that we've already got the ninth largest home builder in the country as a customer. So, you know, we have a peer that is using our technology successfully and selling homes. So that's really given us, you know, kind of a running start, if you will, and we've been super fortunate that all the major home builders in the United States have come to Phoenix to look at what we're doing, you know, the product that we're building, how we're building it, and quite frankly, to validate the fact that it looks just like the product that they build today. So what they like about it is that we're not reinventing the home as a product, right? We're building a product that looks like a traditional home that they already built. We're just reinventing the process for building that home. So from that respect, we've really lowered the barrier to adoption. Well, it's super smart, right? Because the end outcome is the exact same. Some of the other companies I've seen that have talked about the housing crisis, they're selling like tiny homes or these modular homes, but I don't want to live in a a tiny home, really. (laughs) I want a big home. I want to have a nice house. I want to have space. I don't want to have to like hear everything that's going on in the home. So I can see how that approach, it's, tackling the problem in a different way, but because the end outcome is a completely different house than they're used to, that's going to require a lot of change in the industry. I can see why that's going to be very difficult. Yeah. So the thing that we did that I think is really critical to our success is the founding thesis of the business is that we had to deliver familiarity to all the stakeholders. And there's three key stakeholders. There's home buyers, there's home builders, and there's regulatory agencies. So on the home buyer side, we build homes that look like a traditional house, right? There's no architectural exploration here. We're just delivering a home that looks and feels like the home you grew up in. For the home builders, we don't try and sell them equipment, right? We're not selling them technology to build the homes. We're delivering the homes for them. This is a B2B robotics as a service like so home builders their specialty honestly is acquiring land outsourcing the building of the home and then selling the home so the problem we're solving for them is the actual construction of the home on the land right that's the labor shortage that is their key constraint so you know we're just being accretive to the way they do business today and they like that And then finally, the regulatory people, when we developed our structural system, we knew 
that we couldn't bring anything new. Otherwise, there was going to be this huge adoption hurdle. So, you know, I'd like to say that it was super ingenious of us, was really more of a happy accident of experimenting. And so, you know, even though our houses may be 3D printed and finished with robots, our wall system is easily identifiable in the building code. So we're not asking anyone to adopt anything new. Everybody can just look at what we're doing and they can find us in the building code. And they go, great, we understand this. Here's your permit. Go build a house. So smart and, and makes so much sense. And I, I think founders listening in can just learn a lot from the approach that you're taking. Now, I'm going to move into the final couple of questions here before we wrap. So your last company I saw, you'd raised hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Today, Diamond Age, as I mentioned, you're at 58 million. I'm sure you've learned a lot about fundraising and raising money. If you had to choose a couple of big lessons you've learned along the way that would be valuable for founders to know, what would those lessons be? Oh, boy. So it's a two-part. It's a numbers game, but you have to understand the numbers, right? You can't just take the spaghetti and throw it up against the wall and hope it sticks. You've got to find the right audience for what you're doing. And you have to identify, you know, what stage of investment they're comfortable with. I mean, when I started raising money, there was no such thing as pre-seed. You know, seed was the earliest you could go. And now you've got a plethora of pre-seed. It's almost like you've got to understand the stage of investing. And the other thing I would say is you really got to work hard on your network getting connected to people because a warm introduction is gold. You can do it with cold calling, you know, if you're really smart about it and make a compelling reason why the two of you should talk. But if you can get somebody who knows your target to bring you forward, it's just going to be a lot easier because VCs look at thousands of deals and that quite frankly, they're oriented to say no. They're not built to say yes. So those are a couple of things I think that would be, you know, good housekeeping things to keep in mind. What do you think is the most important skill for a founder to have to be successful? Well, I mean, it's to understand that you can't do it yourself. You know, it used to be that you could be an independent founder and get funding, like back pre-2000. And then it became, you know, you need a co-founder. And then it became, well, if you have more co-founders and you all have sort of disparate skill sets, that that gave investors more confidence that the team came with the requisite skills, you know, to run a good business. It's not about just having a good idea. You have to execute. I have said this over and over and over again. You know, there are a million good ideas out there, but there is only one-tenth of one percent of execution. And it's the other reason why you find VCs like repeat founders, even founders that have failed the first time, because that, you know, that's better than an MBA, because a good founder will have taken all those hard lessons and internalized them and make damn sure they don't repeat them. So... It's really, you know, having a good business co-founder and a good technical co-founder is really table stakes anymore. And then if you can, you know, expand on that even more, you're, you're embarrassed. And final question, let's zoom out 10 years into the future. 
Is there a big number you're working towards? How many homes do you want to have built 10 years from today? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, look, we talked about the fact that annually we're short a half a million homes in this country. We love to solve that. We love to go past that because, as I mentioned, there's this 7 million aggregate unmet demand and growing. So we've got to catch the annual unmet demand before we can start to tap into that. Today, the largest home builder in the country is D.R. Horton, and they just had their largest year ever in 2021, I believe, 2022. They built 82,000 homes. That's a long way from 500,000 homes a year. So, you know, we think about Diamond Age, not so much as a home builder, but a manufacturer of homes working with developers who sort of do the other parts of the component. I don't think it's unreasonable to think that Diamond Age could do 500,000 homes a year. You know, if you get a technology platform that is scalable and deploy it for all the players in the space, you know, that's a win. Amazing. I love it. Jack, this conversation has been so much fun. I've gotten so much value out of it. I've learned a lot and I know the audience is going to as well. If there's any founders that are listening in and they want to follow along with your journey as you build and execute on this vision, where should they go? Yeah. So diamondage3d.com. There's some super interesting stuff out there. If you go to the Diamond Age LinkedIn page, there are always new videos popping up there of robotic tools that are hitting the field or, you know, some new things we're accomplishing in the, you know, sequence of construction. And, you know, certainly on the investor side, we're raising now, Brett. And if anybody uh, would like to chat, you can reach me at chat at diamondage3d.com. So happy to talk to folks. Amazing. Jack, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it again. Really love this conversation. It was so much fun. Thank you, Brett. All right. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.